Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We were going to have, uh, or maybe we do have, the Midwest companies, but uh, Betsy and I got positive COVID tests Friday, so rather than take my pencil notes in a Monday and have Vivian do them, they won't get done until next week. Mike has done his own version, and uh, that'll probably, if it's not already available, will be available. And then you'll note that Mike rounds everything to millions of dollars, where I do it hundreds of millions of dollars, but the results come out about the same. A good question is what to do next week, because we want to stay on a schedule where we do these. I think it's the case. I don't want to promise, but I think it's the case that we'll get to my uh, Caterpillar versus Deere versus Emerson versus Generac next week, and also a rundown of the four leading midstream companies, which would be Kinder Morgan, Enterprise, Energy Transfer, and, and Williams. We at Yorktown know those companies pretty well. We've sold things to them. We have companies that compete with them. So we'll we'll have some color on that when we're next together next Wednesday. In terms of this week, I'm serious about the cold weather in Europe. What has happened in both the oil market and the gas market is lower prices. The lower natural gas prices, uh, I mean, the strip is holding up pretty well. But a lot of people are predicting $3 gas in the second half of 23. The reason they're making that prediction, because the futures curve for that period is $4, or $4 and change. The reason they're making that, or, or higher, I guess, the reason they're making that prediction is because U.S. gas production continues to increase two key areas, associated gas from the Permian, uh, in other words, gas produced along with the oil, and then Haynesville gas in Louisiana and uh, eastern Texas. The Marcellus, which is our largest gas field at 35 Bs, is pretty flat. I think what has happened with the Marcellus is that there's limited takeaway capacity, so the operators there, the larger operators are EQT and Chesapeake and our own Antero are cautious about adding production and not having takeaway capacity. In other words, the, the, the way to get it piped to market and then getting into big differentials. The great hope for the natural gas business is LNG exports to Europe. I saw this week, and I'm supposed to be very familiar with this, but I was surprised. U.S. imports have increased enough so that the largest three exporters are are the United States, which for the full year may be first, despite the Freeport facility being down. Uh, Gutter, where, of course, we've been, the, the World Cup is being uh, hosted, 
and Australia and the U.S. based on projects that are being built will keep up with Gutter. I think both will be ahead of ahead of Australia. The supply of LNG for the moment is more than ample based on how it trades. For example, as we got into the early winter, LNG started trading at 14 or $15 if you wanted to deliver a cargo in the near term in the, in, you know, two weeks or three weeks for, you know, from, from the present. If it was three months or two months even from now, it would be 28 or $30. Well, but that's called a contango when the current price is less than the futures price. What that means is that the European countries, led frankly by Germany, did a great job of stockpiling uh, natural gas uh, and uh, or LNG gasified or in LNG terminals. And so consequently, uh, and, and the early weather and winter weather in Europe was on the warm side. So uh, all that storage had not been run down that much. Now that it's cold, that'll, that'll improve a bit. But there's no question that no matter how the Ukraine war comes out, Europe will never trust Russia to be like half their gas. And so there will be opportunities for whoever's got new capacity, the United States, Gutter, to uh, have firm contracts with European utilities. The other thing the Europeans have done is stockpiled two oil, especially. Now, fortunately, that's come down. That impacts the U.S. because, you know, we heat with two oil and we use effectively two oil for diesel trucks and whatnot. The crack spread for two oil, in other words, the price of the product over the price of a barrel of crude got as high as $90. Normally, it's around $15 or $20. So, but it has come down. I think it's probably sitting at 40 or something now. So, but part of the part of the phenomenon there was European companies stockpiling two oils so that if uh, in a cold snap, uh, they were told by their utility that they had to shut down so they didn't use natural gas they'd be able to convert over to two oil because typically the natural gas is being used to make electricity. They would have generators, cat generators that would run on the two oil. So they would, you know, flip over to two oil. So cold weather in Europe is good news for the energy business. In terms of the stock market recovery, because of the Fed looking uh, less hawkish, I think that the way to think about that is that the Fed still has to get its balance sheet down by a trillion dollars a year to restore or eliminate the liquidity or, or mop up the liquidity that was created to combat COVID, where the Fed balance sheet went from four trillion to nine trillion. They are getting it down at ninety billion a month. So good for them. Generally when that happens, you look for cracks in the into form where people are having trouble rolling debt, where you oftentimes see problems is less developed countries, which borrow money in dollars, but earn money in their own currency and get into trouble. So far, so good. All the money lost and, you know, the collateral damage from cryptocurrencies, I think would have happened without shrinking the Fed balance sheet. 
So, so far, so good in terms of the Fed's program. The last inflation print was a little bit less. The Fed today did 50 basis points, where they had been doing 75 basis points. It's just the dot plot, and I haven't listened to the chairman's Q&A, but, you know, I think they're going to be careful to not have the bond market or the equity market assume that they'll get to a real interest rate. In other words, a Fed funds rate that's more than, somewhat more than the inflation rate at that time, and then suddenly come back down. They, they're they worried about declaring victory too soon. Remember, this Fed was like 18 months late. They're the ones that said inflation is transitory. It wasn't just political figures. And of course, that was completely wrong. So having having made a mistake like that, the Fed governors, I think, will hold that 5% Fed funds rate or wherever it gets, five and a half longer. If you look at what the bond market is predicting, they're predicting that they they get it to five or five and a quarter and then start down pretty quickly. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Whether or not there's a recession is an interesting question. The first three quarters of, let's see, the first two quarters of 22 had negative real GNP. Generally, two quarters of what, what that means is the adjusted for inflation GNP declined in the first quarter and declined in the second quarter. The definition of a recession is typically two negative GNP quarters in a row. This couldn't be called a, a recession because the, the unemployment rate was three and a half percent. The number of job openings was more than more than the number of people saying that they were are unemployed, that they're looking for work. So with a tight labor market like that, you can't, you know, by definition, you know, no matter what the real GNP is doing, you, you don't have a recession. To a certain extent, that proceeds into the end of the year and probably into early next year. The the the, the, the monthly job numbers still show 200,000 new jobs or so. The unemployment rate is still 3.5% or a little bit more. To have a recession, you're probably going to have to get that unemployment rate to four and a half or five percent, and maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. I can tell you anecdotally with the companies that we own interest in and whatnot, no one is willing to give up an employee. In other words, it, it, it's been so hard to hire or so hard to retain employees, no one, even with the decline in business, is going to uh, uh, let go of an employee. We're going to we're going to get into Mike and Jason's reaction to all this on employment, because if there's one place where people are letting go of employees, it's in the tech industry. But I just I just want to cover one more subject before we get into that, and that is China. China seems to have opened up. In other words, they, they said zero COVID isn't working. It's not working economically. You know, their, their protests, it almost looked like you know, a significant political challenge to the Communist Party. So they have vectored away from zero COVID, but they have very little immunity in their population. They're billion, 200 million people, and they have very little vaccine coverage. And, you know, they may have a whole bunch of disease. 
So it's a little unclear exactly how to think about this going forward. In terms of the price of oil, it's definitely a negative because they are the second largest consumer of oil products in the world. And I think that uh, it's not, not a positive for the tech industry, for sure, I don't think. And with that, unless Mike or Jason have anything to add to my opening comments, I'd like to focus in on the tech industry where, you know, the, the, the stock market indices have come back pretty strongly. Some of the major tech stocks are languishing or still coming down. So, Mike or Jason, anything to add? My two cents on the layoffs and, and whatnot that's happening in the, in the tech industry is tech's definitely getting hit the worst. It's it's interesting because a lot of these tech companies were kind of built to scale so that OPEX wouldn't have to balloon with revenue as revenue grew. But that's sort of what we've seen in almost every company. And the general justification that it was is that it was all for growth. I think you're seeing a rebalancing of many of those companies and it with a focus on cash flow. The other areas we've seen layoffs are like everybody from the Washington Post to even like Goldman Sachs and the financials have started some layoffs. So you can see there's some areas that got really frothy during COVID. That's just kind of where you expect to see, see things pull back. Jason, do you have any other inputs on that? No, not, not related to layoffs, I guess back to the, the bond market pricing and future rates. Um, I'm curious, Hunt, your thoughts on, on the Fed running off their balance sheet, you know, they have maybe five or eight trillion more on the balance sheet than they, they need to hold. And if they're only doing a billion or a trillion a year, how do you look at that going forward in the next eight years, I guess? Uh, I think I think the answer is that we don't know. Um, the bond markets has had a huge rally quarter to date. And I, I think it may be a, a, a rally in a, in, a, in a market that gets reversed. In other words, the rally will get reversed. But it's, I suppose the logic for the bond rally is that enough tightening has happened, interest rates and, and reducing the Fed balance sheet, basically reducing the money supply, so that we will have a more serious recession and remember, the Fed has a dual mandate, inflation plus employment. So if they if they thought that they were headed, I mean, their, their way of measuring inflation is the PC, Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, I think it's called. And it's, it's running way below the consumer price index. It's like 5%. And I can see where that index, which is what they prefer to look at, it's down to three percent, three and a quarter, two and three quarters. And if your uh, if your unemployment rate, if all of a sudden, rather than adding 200,000 jobs a, uh, a month, we were losing 300,000 jobs a month and the employment rate was going up and whatnot. I think it's that kind of a, an outcome that the bond market over the past 30, 45 days has been predicting. And, you know, there's an old saying about markets that the bond market has a better better record of making economic forecasts than the stock market but you know we will see i personally think 
you know, the, the, the bond market is wrong. I don't foresee 5% unemployment. I, I do think maybe it's because I'm so tied up with the uh, commodities prices, especially energy. I do think that, that PCE will continue to come down, whether it comes from wherever it, it will be reported next, probably in the four and a half, five percent, whether it gets down to three and a half or three percent or within hailing distance of two percent. I mean, it might happen. But I don't know in that event, this Federal Reserve has been so slow and made these ridiculous pronouncements with the benefit of hindsight that inflation was transitory, that was all based on supply chain, you know, and, and reopening. I just can't imagine that this set of Fed governors who, remember, are appointed, you know, the, the, Fed, the Fed governor in Dallas is appointed by Texas businessmen and ditto for San Francisco and whatnot. So these are these are not political appointees. I just can't imagine that this Fed isn't going to keep interest rates fairly elevated. In other words, elevated relative to the inflation rate for, you know, 12 or months or more to make sure that they've really gotten you know, corrected the mistake that they collectively made. Awful lot of macro stuff. I'd like to, I'd like to ask Jason a couple of things that really interest me. Mm -hmm. I'm a loyal Amazon stockholder, you know, up a lot, but down like 40% or 50% maybe from the high. And uh, this is on page four of the, uh, of the sheets. And uh, as you can see, Amazon doesn't really have any free cash flow because their capex is 65 billion. I think we've covered in past Wednesdays that about half of that capex is adding additional capacity at Amazon Web Services. So that's going to continue. But the half that was building out more warehouses and whatnot obviously will be lower because they've acknowledged that they built way more capacity than it turned out they needed. But one of the things, and, and Jassy, the new, the new CEO, has been tackling cost centers. And one of the, one of the, one of the costs is that I, I know in a past call, Jason said would be unfortunate, would be the digital assistant the, uh, and the ability to uh, respond to uh, language and whatnot, because that was all AI. Just in the past week or two, a couple of AI programs have been released, which purport to write term papers or uh, or uh, do do things that seem you know awfully impressive. I just want to draw Jason out a bit on what he thinks is going on and the issue. I mean, these things could be challenging to Google, which spends, I guess, an enormous amount of R&D on AI. But how do you see the this impacting the tech companies, Amazon and Google especially, and then how far do you think this will carry or how much? I mean, is this the same inflection point as the announcement on being able to uh, have some energy gain from shooting lasers at hydrogen molecules or fusion? Uh, or is it is it more of, you know, will we look back and see it as more of a, uh, even more of an inflection point? So over to you, Jason. I think right now it's more of an inflection point. Nuclear fusion is still a long ways away, whereas some of these, these AI programs, particularly ChatGPT is, is the, latest, the, the latest great thing released. That's here now. And, and I think 
the capabilities of that and and as the public sees it it's it's kind of like the eye-opening moment is maybe maybe ai is real and it's and it's here i think amazon could benefit from it a, a lot of their business is still you know product based and selling goods and what what chat gpt is good at one of the one of the many things it's good at is creating um marketing language advertisements you know it's trained on every everything from the internet so it's it's read a lot of advertisements and it can in an automated fashion tailor advertisements to particular audiences uh, and you don't have to employ marketing professionals or creatives to, to come up with this content so it can maybe you know you, you could see tailored advertisements to particular people um, in the near future I think as far as disrupting a business, Google is maybe in the most precarious position. I mean, their their bread and butter is still search and search advertising. If you no longer need to search for things on the internet where you can ask an algorithm for the answer and it, and it just gives you the answer and maybe cites the sources that it pulled it from, that's hugely disruptive to Google's business model. Uh, so they have to be aware of this. And, and like you said, they're, they're doing a lot of research in this front as well. So I don't, I don't know if I haven't seen anything from Google as a response or, you know, product ideas, but it could potentially be extremely disruptive to, to Google's, you know, business model around search. Um, Mike, do you have anything you'd add to that? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Google's probably the one with the most to lose out of this. I think all the other, big tech companies kind of have more to gain. In one sense, Google can probably use these tools to help, help people write better advertisements. But like Jason said, if they if people decide to go to a different place in order to access the internet, that's terribly, terribly bad for Google. And it's something that they have successfully defended for a very long time now. I've yet to see a product that does this, but mm-hmm. the concept is that Google typically these days will provide a results box above their search results. And some of that is sort of manually done, is our understanding. Some of it is by scraping a high probability success website. The approach that GPT, ChatGPT makes is a probabilistic estimation of what the answer should be. And that's sort of a mouthful of words, but it can be accurate most of the time based on the model's impression of all of the information that's been fed to it. It's not going to be right all the time, but for a lot of purposes, it's going to be very accurate and potentially much better than sifting through all the results on Google. So I would not be surprised to see a lot of companies, startup companies in Silicon Valley get funded with a lot of money to go after Google and this exact product. Right. And it can be a much more natural interaction where you, you ask it a question, it provides you an answer. Maybe that's not what you're looking for. And it knows the context of what it just provided you. So you can say, you know, give me, give me differing opinions on this topic or, you know, provide me an argument against this and, and it, it'll generate it. And I'll add one more thing here. This model is actually like two and a half or three years old. So it's not even really the latest thing that's out there. It's just, the thing that we've all now gotten the opportunity to use. There's certainly right. better, similar models that are still in research, R&D phases, if you will. 
I was just going to add add a question to your answer: Is how proprietary will it be? Will you will you be able to claim some patent protection or trademark protection or or how 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 do you see that developing with this kind of software? Yeah, there's there's a that's developing rapidly. I don't have an opinion which way it'll go, but there's a lot of arguments to say you've trained on copyrighted material and it's a derivative work and you know there there's how do you how do you enforce that and and you don't know what content was used to create an answer through these algorithms so maybe there's a way to to withhold content from being indexed by you know some of these ai algorithms in the future but yeah, we, we've talked about that too. And, and what if the algorithm comes up with something that is trademarked or copyrighted and it, and it comes up with it on its own and you don't know if you're infringing, you know, who's liable then? Is it on you? Is it on, on the algorithm? There's, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. Oh. Just can't help with Musk in the news so much and getting uh, people laughing at him at a comedy club or uh, or cheering or, or booing them. Tesla is also on page three, along with Alphabet. The uh, they they've announced that they're going to reduce production in their Shanghai plant, and wait times, I guess, have shortened up for getting new Tesla models. How impacted do you think Tesla will be as we kind of look ahead for the next six months? Mike and Jason have spent a fair amount of time looking at. At what price would they want to be Tesla stockholders? Obviously, lower is better. These numbers on these sheets are as of the date the analysis was done. So it was over 200. It's well, well, well below that. Um, I think my answer to that would be that I can't imagine with 2 million cars of capacity. First of all, don't own Tesla. But secondly, don't don't even have a part position, but with with the capacity to produce two million cars, if the free cash yield and we make the free cash flow, or I made the free cash flow at eight billion dollars, if it got down to where it was like twenty times that free cash flow, which would be, you know, still quite a lot lower than than uh, even where it is now. How would you react? I mean, that'd be half. That'd be down in the high hundreds. You'd have to do, a, a, you know, see whether they were losing market share or competition was getting them. You'd see whether their CEO is being so tied, so tied up by Twitter, he's lost his focus on Tesla. But in a few minutes remaining, Mike, how would you, uh, how would you react to a, uh, you know, seeing it at a 5% free cash yield or 20 times free cash flow? Yeah, so when we did that initial analysis, gross margins on their cars were pretty high. They've made a pretty public statement saying that they're gonna they're gonna lower the price of their cars in line with reducing the cost. So if they can hold that level of gross margin, you know, this this is gonna be a very powerful business as far as producing cash flow. If you could buy the five percent free cash yield, you'd be hard pressed to find another company that has better growth prospects. Than Tesla, uh, remember they haven't up really. I mean, the, the most recent new vehicle was the Model Y, 
I guess the semi, which which was just delivered a few weeks ago, but the, prior to that was the Model Y. They've intentionally not released new models because they haven't had to. So I, th- I think there's probably justification for the fact that we're not going to see, especially in, in Hunt's sheet, we're not going to see lots of free cash flow. But when you break out the analysis the way we did a few months back and you allocate part of the pro- problem is they're spending a lot of capex to set up these ca- these factories and they'll be doing more of that as they expand so if you strip some of that out so you can get a feeling for what the maintenance capex is given current production levels you actually end up with a pretty attractive and pretty close to a five percent free cash yield again at about 150 dollars a share so we're pretty close to that <laughs> and it's one of those the way jason and i are looking at it is well, we said we would get really serious about this as it gets, you know, if it gets closer to that. And for a long time, we said, well, it's never going to get anywhere near that. And then it's gotten closer and closer and closer. So there's there's two things at play. I think one is, in general, I'm not expecting the stock price on anything really to run away from us anytime soon. And that's pretty much goes for all, pretty much everything in, in tech in general. So we can take our time and do the analysis. The thing, like like Hunt says, the, the things that we want to see is do these factories still um, generate the these cars with a gross margin as high as we expect? So we did the work to say what we think it should be. As we get closer to that two million unit, we'll be able to uh, to actually compare those. So I think we need another quarter of results probably two or three before we get really comfortable. But if it starts looking right, I think we'll get there. Yeah. Good. Well, just in closing, Musk likes to say that the comparison for Tesla is Apple and Apple as of the, you know, the third week of October, when this analysis was done, was trading for about a 4% free cash yield. Now you, you can't make money. I mean, you want it, double your money every five years. You can't make money with a 4% free cash yield or a 5% free cash yield. You have to have growth on top of that. Doubling your money in, in five years is 15% compound return. So will Apple continue to grow at 10% a year? That's the question for next week, I guess, because we've run out of time. Is Tesla with you know, factories in Shanghai, the, the original factory in Fremont, California, the factory in Austin, the factory in, uh, in West Berlin with that extremely well-developed expertise in, in sourcing batteries and whatnot, are they going to grow 10% a year from, say, $8 billion of free cash flow now so that, you know, they'd be at least $20 billion of free cash flow in five years' time. I'm pretty sure they are. Uh, Apple is the leader in the clubhouse with $95 billion of free cash flow. Apple's a fantastic company. The two leaders in, in just free cash flow are Apple and Microsoft. Apple with 95 and Microsoft with 60 But, But we, I know that this has always been difficult with Apple and Microsoft, but you know, are they going to be able to uh, double their free cash flow, uh, you know, in the next seven or eight years? Mm, harder. I, I think uh, Tesla might be a better bet. But with that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely be on next Wednesday and then the Wednesday between uh, 
Christmas and New Year. And in the meantime, everyone be well and stay healthy. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information, and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.